The Guardian. Well, well, welcome to another week in the World Cup that never dies down. It was a week of water and weather, of hatches battened and leaks newly sprung. A sea of blue, 90,000 strong, washed up on the shores of the MCG, and one of the tournament favourites couldn't hold back the tide. A tropical cyclone washed out another favourite in Brisbane, while in New Zealand a frosty Force 7 wind blew straight from the Southie Pole. England froze while the Kiwi King Brendan McCullum so emphatically announced his reign that we could only say hail. Another gale completely blew as cricket's proud Maroon was embarrassed by a green side, then handed out embarrassment in turn to a side that stays evergreen. A team from Afghanistan played their first World Cup game, then their second, pushing test teams hard, while Scotland also dished out a couple of bloody noses. To talk about all that and more, you're listening to the Guardian World Cup podcast with Jeff Lemon. And joining me in Melbourne within spitting distance of the mighty MCG, we have Middlesex cricketer and advanced English reconnaissance agent Izzy Westbury, Indian cricket writer sentenced to seven years transportation following this Australian tour, Chetan Narula, and my Guardian colleague and one of the world's most respected and feared collectors of Tony Gregg memorabilia, Russell Jackson. Russell, to start this week, I think we need to talk about England. They've, they had a, a terrible week and then they came back with a win yesterday, positivity, a win over Scotland that maybe wasn't entirely convincing, but at least it's got them on the right side of the sheet. Will they be feeling better? Oh, they've got to, compared to how things were going before that, I think. Um, yeah, it was a it was a strange performance in some ways. I mean, they obviously opened up well. Moen Ali and, and Ian Bell played two contrasting innings, but, but got them off to a solid start, and that's what they've lacked in the prior games. So, yeah, it was, it was a much improved performance. I don't think they'll be wrapped with everything, certainly not with the last 20 overs of their, their batting innings, um, in which they made, I think, 100, 130 for eight off the last 20 overs, which is sort of going at a rate of, um, you know, the same rate that most teams are scoring in the last 10 overs is what England scored in their last 20 overs. But that aside, they bowled much better. I think Stephen Finn in particular will be glad not to have been pasted all over the place like he was earlier. So he sort of recovered. So it was, yeah, better signs, but I'm not sure they're completely out of the woods yet. And you have to put that down as well to some pretty tight Scottish bowling in that that last 20 overs, they, they strung some good overs together there and were fairly sharp on the, in the field and really could have put England under more pressure if they'd uh, taken a couple of chances as well. Yeah, I think Ali early, he was on maybe seven or eight. There was a catch that went just wide in short. So it could have gone differently for them. And I think Scotland would be pretty disappointed with that performance. I that... think Morgan as well was missed at deep mid-wicket very early yeah. in his innings. And yeah, then he, he, he... was. Uh, cashed in later on. But Izzy Westbury, you were saying there was a strange feeling of being relieved to win against Scotland, but then feeling slightly embarrassed that you needed to be relieved about winning against Scotland. Yeah, I mean, you need to put it into perspective, don't you? I think you're right. It's probably a confidence boost. But I mean, Scotland, they're they're ranked 13th, I think, in their ODI stuff. And if you look at the sort of sport in Scotland as a whole, I don't think cricket even features a sort of a pastime amongst adults. It's it's really a nothing sport. This is a team that we should be absolutely hammering. And confidence or not, we, we didn't, I don't think. Um, yeah, that last the last 20 overs, 131 for eight. The first, the first 30 were 172 for zero. 300 just, it's not enough. You want, you want viciousness. You wanted to see. You need to. 
after the first two performances we've had, I mean, you've got to come back from that. And that really wasn't the message that we needed. Yeah, Morgan scored runs. Ali was looking brilliant. And I think it's a pat on the back and that's it. Now, if we look back to the the New Zealand game before that, it was one of the most dominant displays of bowling ever at a World Cup by Tim Southey. He he took seven for 33. He was swinging the ball everywhere. He clean bowled four of his seven wickets, I think. The the rest were were caught behind. Chetan, have you how how exciting was that bowling performance to look at? Well, uh, it was exciting for sure, but I was also scared because, you know, uh, at some point of time, the Indian team is going to play them and they don't really have a good record against the moving ball. But uh, when you look at that sort of a performance, you, I mean, it was a complete performance to be to be very honest, complete bowling performance. And the way uh, with the moving ball, I mean, yes, Trenbold was uh, was bowling beautifully in the games, in the couple of games before that. But the Tim Saudi also coming and they have uh, these two two bowlers with both from both ends using those two new balls and the intent was so aggressive you had four slips at at different points to different batsmen they were just not letting it go i mean perhaps it was it was a signal of intent uh maybe against scotland they they lost a few more wickets than they would have wanted to yes the the total they were chasing against scotland was a small one they wanted to go aggressive against it but like i said you know they they perhaps lost a few more wickets than they would have wanted to and they really wanted to make a statement that, listen, that, that game was just a blur. And, uh, you know, against the side, uh, I mean, people would say, yes, England, uh, despite all their weaknesses, they, they are once, they are supposed to qualify for the quarterfinals. So it was just a so, so much uh, a signal of intent from New Zealand that, no, we're not going to back off at any moment, at any second in this particular game. And that's uh, what they did. Yeah. And I think that that performance by Saudi ran counter to two narratives, which firstly, that on the smaller New Zealand grounds that the bat will dominate, um, as it did in some of the early games, and that wasn't the case. The second one is that um, that ODI cricket is a but now a batsman-dominated game, and you saw all it takes is for a bit of movement. I mean, it was, it was significant movement, but all of a sudden you have guys who are used to uh, medium pace bowling on the spot and dispatching it all over the place. And the minute the ball was moving, England were all at sea and Southie just made them look like rubes. Absolutely. And and just talking about, just taking off from that point, uh, you know, with two new balls and uh, like I said, with, with, short, with short grounds and the ball moving around, uh, the, the, it was thought it would be a balance between bat and ball. But I was just uh, noting yesterday, around uh, eight games we have had that the first innings total has crossed 300 and what only once maybe that it has been chased down when when Ireland uh, uh, got it against uh, West Indies so uh, despite the fact that you have two new balls from both ends and you know swing playing a bit of a factor uh, you have out of eight out of 14 games or uh, 13 or 14 games that you have scores of uh, you know take out the washout game from Brisbane you have scores of 300 being scored in the first inning so that's um, probably a bit of a Surprise, maybe for for me at least. Yeah, I thought it was interesting with the, the New Zealand Scotland game. You know, Scotland made one forty two. New Zealand lost seven wickets in chasing it. Um, 
I thought watching it live that that was more down to not being super aggressive going after it. They were sort of just trying to work the ball around and, and sort of limp their way to the total, particularly later in the innings. There wasn't really a sense that New Zealand were going to lose that. They lost most of those wickets sort of at the tail end of the run chase. But I felt like their response to England was definitely in response to that, that they yeah. weren't just going to poke around and make mm. the, uh, you know, the English total was only 123. New Zealand came out and absolutely went for it. Brendan McCullum, 77 from 25 balls. He hit Steve Finn for four sixes in a row at one point. And uh, Izzy, do you think that was a direct response to that previous? I also think it's the sign of a really great team. Is one that they can go from the back of one match. They, yeah, they won it, but they were unhappy with that. And you could see that from, the, from their response. And McCullum obviously came in and went, right, we're going to change that around straight away. And this is unfortunately what I don't think we're really seeing with the, with the England team, is that response from one match to the next to be able to change it, the flick of the switch. And New Zealand showed us exactly what they could do. Is this, is this something that just doesn't exist in the English DNA? Are they down on confidence? Is it a matter of personnel? Is it a matter of management? I mean, look at it. It does, it does seem to be the attitude, doesn't it? When you look at the way in which New Zealand have approached these games and the way in which England, with a team like Scotland, who you should be taking it away from them, they kind of just want to bat out their 50 overs. Mm. Whereas New Zealand are like, nah, OK. Was it broad? He got figures of 0 of 27 off 2.2 against, uh, against New Zealand and a fin 0 for 49 off 2. New Zealand wanted to finish it as quickly as possible. I can never see an England team doing that, being like, we're going to do this in how as few possible overs as we possibly can. Right, we need to dominate this side rather Absolutely than just dominate. technically, we're, carefully, cautiously. And get maybe the win. this does go back to the whole English gentleman. We'll just bat it out, boys. And but I think it's maybe too a microcosm of the fact that England are so far behind the eight ball in the sense of the the direction that limited overs cricket yeah. is heading, yeah. and that. You know, even when they scored 300, and this is probably being a little bit harsh on them, it seemed like an unimpressive 300 in some ways <laughs> that, you know, Mo and Ali obviously played a, a tremendous innings. Well, he did most of the work. He basically. did most of the work. Morgan hit his straps a little bit, um, you know, and he'll be glad for the fact that he actually started to middle some. But either side of that, you've got a whole heap of guys that England always look like a, a batting lineup that will make 250, not 350. Yeah. It's just not in their fibre. I mean, uh, I was there on, on in their English on the English tour, and uh, the one feeling that I got, and things were going wrong for them at that point the, of time. The uh, Indian tour, Indian, of England, sorry, yeah, the yeah. Indian yeah. tour of England. So uh, things were not really working out for them. You know, the the especially from the ODI point of view, and in every match there would be, I don't want to say excuse, but there would be some some reason given that why England are not playing the way. Other teams are playing ODI cricket, and at that point of time, you had you had you obviously had to compare it to India. But then again, they went to Sri Lanka and they got and they lost there as well. But uh, the, the change came for them quite late. But it's been a good change. But then you look at it, the the warm the tri series and the warm up games. They have James Taylor batting at three. He's doing perfectly fine. But then suddenly they want to do it. They think that they want to do it even in a, in a better way, and they get Gary Valens at number three and shift James Taylor down and. Some other teams will not do that. For example, India, they will never do that. They, they'll experiment, obviously, but then when they have something that's working, they will stick with it. And that's, that's, that's what it takes to build a good team, an attacking team. And uh, England just don't have it. So I guess that comes to the next question then, is whether our whole game domestically as well back in England is geared more towards the long game. Um, and I think you only have to really look at some of the, the ODI player appearances you know, 
Collingwood at the moment holds a record for England at 197. Right. You compare that to India and to Dorcas on 463. Right. And even in this World Cup, Sangakara, I think, would be 399 or 400. And Ponting got 374. 197 is our highest ODI right. appearance, and then Anderson's 189. You know, that's nothing. Mm. And and I remember it. Um, you know, during the tri series, I think Ian Bell became the first English player to to score 5,000 yeah. ODI runs, yeah. was it? Or he beat Collingwood's record. Yeah, so Collingwood is around. the only other one that has 5,000. Right, and that's it. And then I think they're in the top. The, the list of the top 70 ODI uh, run scorers worldwide. There are two Englishmen, and that's Collingwood and Bell. Right, I mean, and the the Bell innings. Uh, against Scotland, he did cop some stick over the fact that he took so long to get going. But it did look a little bit... He looked like a batsman who knew, if I get out, there's a there's a well-set batsman mm. at the other end who's playing well. If I get out, the whole thing could just collapse. And that's what he looked like. And to be, I think he was, you know, he, he was within his rights to think that. Mm. And I think the... When you compare... I mean, if you want to look at this as from the long view of we want to send a side to a World Cup to win a World Cup, compare England's number three, which right at the moment is Gary Ballance, compared to having, you know, a guy like Duplessis or um, De Villiers coming in. Or, or Virat Kohli or for Virat India. Or Kohli or, you know, a lot of these Alex guys. Hales. You know, these guys <laughs> that these dynamic batsmen mm. that other sides have got coming in and England sort of don't know who their number three is. Yeah, I, I thought Ian Bell's innings was perfectly reasonable in the circumstances. You've got, you know, he's made 54 of 85, so that's a strike rate a bit above 60. But Moen Ali at the other end has a strike rate of 120. So collectively, the opening partnership has a strike rate of 90. That means, you know, that's that's pretty decent going. If, if the other guy's flying, there's no reason why Bell had to do that. He just needed to stick around and make sure they were none for. He did his job. They had the 170-odd yeah. platform by the time the wicket went down. Off, off 30 or whatever it was. And then it just falls in a bit of a hole because though um, Butler and Morgan looked, you know, at times they looked like those dynamic batsmen, but certainly not um, Root at any point and, and Balance didn't either and it's almost like England have this disconnect in their batting order it mostly relies on both Bell and Ali batting well as they did and then in that middle period before Morgan Butler come in and and finish it off it just kind of sags right although you know Joe Root does have the ability to be a much more dynamic attacking sort of player I guess the issue as I look at it is that is that if the script changes we can't adapt as in we've got sort of Ali and Bell, they, if they perform their role, then Root's perfect coming in there sort of at four. He knows what he needs to do, sort of fill in that gap in the 30, 40, 40 overs. Um, and then you've got Morgan as the finisher, Butler as the finisher. But the moment that something goes wrong, we, we don't know what to do. Right. So is it a lack of, of Impact players. Yeah, exactly. Um, lack of impact players. I mean, um, his point is perfect. I mean, you look at the Indian team in the first match against Pakistan, they had a huge... Uh, total. Uh, the, the first couple of wickets got what two uh, got to the thirtieth over. They sent in Suresh Rana. He caught in. He just got momentum in. Virat Kohli stayed at one end, and you they got a three hundred despite a late order collapse. Mm. Same thing happened uh, against a stronger bowling attack like South Africa's. And India thought you know Ajinkya Rahane would be a better better option. Obviously, they also wanted to keep the left right combination going, but that's uh, that's a different matter. But but they sent in Rajinkya Rahane. Same thing happened. He, he again got the momentum going despite later. You don't have those impact players in the English lineup. Mm. Um, yes, somebody like a Joe Root and Ewan Morgan. He's absolutely um, 
he was out of form. I mean, just couldn't get back to ball. But he's he's got that touch back. But can he, uh, you know, just fire away in in the coming matches? It, he is that sort of a player, but mm. it just hasn't worked for England. And right. and they they started. It looked like they were starting to get that blueprint of the batting order right during the tri series. But uh, I was just baffled when they they brought back Gary Valence and just pushed down James Taylor mm. to to number six. It was it was a surprising decision for me. And it's sort of staggering to me that a, a cricket nation so prone to self analysis and who have all of these staff. Who are who are meant to be there? Yeah. Obviously, advising on you know at this st- just basic stuff at this stage of an ODI innings, we need to be accelerating or consolidating. They know you know they should know this stuff, and it's almost like the the balance of the England side is just never quite right. Um, and yeah, like you said, even if in the Indian lineup, for instance, in that top five. Rahane on paper looks the most stayed player, yet comes out the other night against South Africa and makes 79 off 60 or whatever mm. it is. And England don't just don't have those extra gears and don't have the adaptability in their batting that when things are meandering, someone can pull them out of it. Right. I, I, I read a, a comment online that was... Uh, along the lines of Moen Ali is the only wild card in what is otherwise a senior citizens bridge club, um, is is it is that is is that a, an accurate analogy? Yeah, so I think it's it's a shame in a way because I feel as though sort of this uh, in the summer last English summer last year, so August two thousand and fourteen, I feel as though the England setup kind of realised that. And they named a sort of 30-man squad that was quite ambitious. So it had the likes of Jason Roy and you've got Chris Jordan there as well. And they started getting people like Sam Billings into the sort of setup who'd really absolutely fired in the sort of T20 formats domestically. And there was a sense that we'd kind of got over that hill and that, and that you know, we were looking towards a kind of player in the guise of he who must not be named um, <laughs> to add that bit of spark. And then, and, then we, and also the fact that we'd had, um, we'd organised all the one-day matches, exclusively one-day matches over the winter. And then suddenly, the game the, the game before the World Cup starts, we go back to a test player. I mean, what is that? Right. We and had all the, all, the, all the setup there in place to have these young players come in, and we've kind of panicked at the last hurdle. And Taylor's been backed in for matches and matches to be the oh number God, three, Taylor. and suddenly he's shunted down to six, makes 98 not out there, then he's getting moved around again. And you just feel sorry for him, and he looks dejected. He looked the way he looked batting the other day. You know, he just looks out of sorts in his body language because that innings against Australia, obviously it was against the tide, and it was it was relatively easy to look good compared to the rest of the, the batting lineup, but he, you know, I think it's disappointing when a guy shows, hey, th- you know, this is a guy maybe who can be the anchor of an innings if we bat him at three, and then he just sort of he he's just floating down there at six now. The problem with England is that um, they, this particular team or this particular core group of players or under this particular leadership, they came together at a very late stage, so uh, uh, they didn't really have that time period or time frame to. Um, should I say, experiment. Uh, what is needed in a tournament like this is when you have uh, maybe two or three batsmen who can each of them bat at three, four, and five. If you look at other teams, they are, almost every team have those sort of batsmen who can play those dual roles. They can bat at three, they can bat at four, they can even bat at five. So 
the question to ask here is this who are those batsmen in this english lineup who can perform those roles and you look at joe root or maybe james taylor they can bat at 3 they can bat at 4 as well and who are the enforcers you have morgan you have somebody like moin ali and maybe you also have somebody like ravi bopara and he is sitting out mm. while somebody like james taylor is shunted up and down the order he can bat at 3 and you know and once you get that platform why not have somebody like morgan and um, you know uh, you have josh butler as well i mean he he played a good knock in the tri series mm. against india um, when they were what four down five down and they then took them to victory at uh, at perth so mm. you have those sort of players who can go ballistic in the last five uh, five or 10 overs if you have that platform so you really need to pinpoint um, at what players can give you know you you can attack with moin ali at the top but then you need those players who can bat out those middle overs and is gary and when you bat out those middle overs they they also need to accelerate after that so is gary balance one of those players these are key questions which i think because of certain late decisions for england's preparation the world cup they could not arrive at at, mm. at a decent point of time we should probably wrap up with england but just before we do is he do you have a magic solution out of the squad they've got now what should they be doing looking to their next game i mean i think balance has scored 10 in every single in his last three innings um each for that consistent yeah consistent <laughs> wow given that um i can't see him batting on like this we have to beat sri lanka um if we want to make any sort of statement at all um and i mean i'm a papara fan uh, i think that he has the the firepower and the impetus and actually you know we're talking about hails as well um should there be a hails in there Sh- instead of balance should um bapara be there instead of wokes that's what i'm looking at mm. um yeah all right send in the memo uh we should have a look for our australian listeners at well, there's an uneasy truce going on um australia didn't get to play on the weekend their game was washed out at the gabba despite knowing days ahead of time that there were tropical storms circling and and that rain would be inevitable and there was unlikely to be a match against bangladesh Uh, was that a misstep should the should the match have been moved russell jackson should the icc be more versatile when it comes to that sort of thing well, that's kind of an oxymoronic statement i guess but yeah i mean it's it's disappointing that the structure of the tournament is so rigid that you can't have reserve days in a schedule that's so spread out you know but this is a seven week tournament and we're being told that you know rain in a city that you know rain that we could have foretold for a couple of days um is impacting on the tournament and there's implications there for England that you know Bangladesh get this point that they weren't possibly expecting to get mm-hmm. and it's just the whole situation is not ideal but that's just you know that's just the way it is is, it, is that part of the magic i mean pakistan's win in in 92 had a couple of rain washouts didn't it that that netted them a point here and there that it did. that helped them get into the semis and they were also out of form in the early stages too so that you know that that's the benefit of a long tournament i guess on the flip side of what i just said is that there's time to play yourself in and out of form over the course of that tournament but one good thing out of that australia bangladesh washout was the quote we got from brad hadden about um shakib al hasan he said quote they've got the number one all-rounder in the world who i dare say would be pretty keen to make a name for himself here <laughs> um yeah probably probably done that it's on the back of his shirt He's he's played in the Big Bash. I mean, even even people in Australia know who Shakib Al Hasan is. That now. number one all rounder in the world who has to make yes. a name for himself. Well, you know, he's 
He's top of the pile, but he didn't get to show his wares and probably wouldn't have been too sad about that, I'm guessing. But So the interesting thing is now we've got uh, Australia playing New Zealand next weekend, by which time they won't have played a game in two weeks. Michael Clark was supposed to have his comeback against Bangladesh to sort of ease back into the tournament and test his body out and see if it would break. Now he's going to come back against this absolute form side um, at their home ground in Auckland at Eden Park, which is a tiny cricket ground. Tatan, is this a recipe for disaster? What's or is this uh, is this going to be the glorious comeback of Australia's golden boy? Well, a couple of points here. First of all, um, one, um, I'm 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 really of the strong belief that uh, Australia wouldn't have gambled with this Michael Clark injury drama, if I can say so. If the World Cup was not being held in Australia, it, Australia, New Zealand, it was not a home World Cup for them because that's not what Australia do, first of all. Um, and second of all, it's, uh, it's a game that Australia must win because um, New Zealand have played three matches and um, one of the reasons why they went just hammered and tongs against England was because the next game, after a bit of a gap, is against Australia in their home ground. So uh, they just wanted to make that statement. And for, for Australia, and they have stolen a march on Australia for, and for Australia now, this is the game where they need to make a statement. They've beaten England, yes, a comprehensive win on the opening day of, of the World Cup. But now is the time for Australia to make a statement like, look, you have stolen a march on us, that we are still there and thereabouts. Um, as regards with Michael Clark, uh, the solution perhaps is provided by Shane Watson, who's who's not in form. Uh, I heard a very interesting quote that from Glenn. me. Yeah, I heard a very interesting uh, quote from Glenn McGrath the other day when he said that you know you have Mitch uh, Mitch Marsh who's been performing very well, and you have James Faulkner who's been batting in the nets. He's not far away from full fitness, so you have other people who can fulfil that uh, role of all rounder that Shane Watson, and he's he, he's been really out of touch. The important point here is that he bowls those extra over. In. And somebody like George Bailey, he he's he's got the runs in the last innings, and he it, it's been a selfless uh, experience, I can say. From when when you look at George Bailey, he's leading when Michael Clark is not around, and then he hands over to Smith when he gets banned, and he's been he's also dropped himself down the order to let Steve Smith bat up, uh, you know, bat at number four. So uh, it's been a selfless thing from George Bailey, and now he's got runs. So will Australia drop him? Like I said, Shane Watson provides the answer. Mm. Do uh, what do you think? Is is this? I mean, obviously, it's going to going to be a game that gets a lot of attention. I mean, does it does it matter? Well, I think the the thing you have to weigh up then is how much the person, the player as a person, um, provides that team in terms of Clark being the captain, and obviously the team really rally around him, and there's this huge kind of team ethos. I think you were talking about that last week, or whether the person as a player hasn't played that much, probably isn't the best form. And which one sort of overbalances the other? I think also it's, it's it's important to say that Watson and Clark, being the sort of two players who possibly might not make the team on form, they um, Watson has the second highest World Cup average, and he's only behind Clark in that. And this is an overall, and he also has the highest strike rate. So in terms of that history and that impetus coming in, does that mean a lot to the Australia squad as a whole, as opposed to the team? I don't know. You'd have to ask them. Right. Yeah, I don't think you can look at Faulkner necessarily as a replacement for Watson because they've been playing him as a specialist bowler who happens to also have a chasing average of 109.5 in one-day cricket. Um, but he's been batting at eight with Haddon at seven. Um, so he's been regarded as a front line at one of, one of the, the front four bowlers. Then you've got this sort of all-round stuff in the middle where you've got Glenn Maxwell at six who's being relied upon quite a lot. 
Clark, if he came in, can bowl a couple of overs. Steve Smith can bowl a couple of overs. Um, does this leave them short if they get Mitch Marsh into the team? Can he bat in the top six? Because that's what he'd need to do if he'd replace Watson. Well, I mean, there'd be a compelling case for Faulkner coming straight back in. And that's, to me, that's the, been the bigger out than Clark has been Faulkner. I mean, you'd speak about the finishing with the batting, but there's also the fact that he's the guy they trust um, in the death bowling overs and mm. has the best death bowling record of anyone. Something that will is, I guess, interesting heading into this New Zealand game is that Australia have played New Zealand in only two ODIs in the last five years. Um, so there's there's almost, in a bizarre way, there's an unfamiliarity there as mm. far as these Kiwi guys who have really come on in leaps and bounds, guys like Anderson, guys like Bolt, Southie to a degree is a is a totally different player than the one they they've played against. So there's, I think it's good. It's it's good for Australia that they're facing New Zealand at this point of the tournament, um, and Clark's getting that high intensity game early. When in a sense, I mean every game matters, but this the result of this game in some ways doesn't matter because both of these sides will qualify. So it's a good hit out for Clark, but it'll also tell us a little bit about how these two sides match up against each other because we just don't get to see them play each other. That's right. Aaron Finch was in a press conference this week saying that he's he's never played New Zealand mm. in a one-day no. game and that he was you know he was rather looking forward to it apparently but mm. you know that Look, probably looking forward to not playing England or India I suppose. That, but it's a pretty big disadvantage to come in in a World Cup game and never have faced those bowlers before. You know, he's never faced Trent Bolt or Tim Southey. You know, what's uh, that that could have quite a large bearing on the outcome. You'd yeah, think. but on the flip side, neither New Zealand. Right. Is it, is it harder to face bowling that you've never faced before or bowl to a batsman that you've never bowled to before? Probably batting-wise, but equally. I mean, look at the analysis and stuff you've got nowadays and you can get the bowling machines to do this and that. Okay, it's not it's not replicating it at all. But I think, you know, I don't think this necessarily gives either side an advantage. It just makes it a bit more interesting. Mm. It, it's it's primed to be a really interesting contest, but I mean, does it does it matter? Is it going to be a contest that has any bearing on the outcome? I mean, Australia and New Zealand are likely to finish one and two in the group, regardless of which one finishes where. No, I think um, it's it's going to have a huge implication, particularly because Australia haven't played um, since and um, since the England game, and and especially because of the overriding factor of Clark, because the first game, which Bailey was captain, and he did all those wonderful things, scored a 50, you know, and they won Big crowd, home game. Yes, fine. Then New Zealand go on this winning spree when win three games and then Clark comes back. Right. And suddenly, uh, say, Australia lose. Then what? I mean, New Zealand are even bigger favourites and Australia have to regroup. They've just one victory out of three matches. So uh, from a statement point of view, uh, somebody as a team, which is looked by people here as a team to stop New Zealand, uh, overwhelming favourites, even even more than New Zealand, on the strength of their bowling attack, on the strength that they bat deep. I think this is a very very important game for Australia, and I would I would just disagree with Izzy there. Uh, I think uh, it's uh, a little difficult to face a bowler you have never faced before because uh, the the modern game is so heavily um, favoured in um, in in. The, in is in favour of the batsmen that you have flat pitches and you know fielding restrictions. But then when you have bowlers like Trent Bowl and Tim Saudi bowling beautifully at the moment, and you just come and you haven't played for two weeks, it's fine. Match match wicket practices and everything is fine. But in the middle, 
in the pressure. It's a small ground, so a lot of uh, Kiwi fans will be there as well. So um, I think uh, it, it's going to be an interesting game. It's going to be a heated up game. And just one final point about this. Uh, I think there's one factor that we are overlooking, and that's the size of the ground. Um, it's a very, very small ground compared to, say, the MCG. I mean, two Eden Parks could fit in the MCG, I think. Um, very, very small ground, and you have many, many power hitters on both sides. Um, on, on, on both sides, so that could have a bearing on what sort of a team selection. Um, you know, uh, whether you want to go in with an extra spinner, or you want to go with an extra pacer. Whether you want Watson bowling those extra overs because you wouldn't want somebody like a Steve Smith bowling to Brendan McCullum when he's batting on seventy off thirty balls. Just to dovetail on that point about the unfamiliarity of facing some of the bowlers, it does cut both ways, but it was something Lehman this week fired a, a bit of a shot. It was the More was made of it than necessary, but he said, you know, yes, um, Brendan McCullum's batting well, but there's a big difference between facing guys bowling 135 k's an hour and bowling 150 k's an hour with serious swing like you'll get against Stark and, you know, the pace of Johnson. And I guess if, if you know, you were an optimistic Kiwi, you would be saying, well, these guys face Trent Bolt and Tim Southey in the nets. So they get yes. a reasonable amount of preparation in that sense. But um, there is probably some credence to what Lehman says too, that, um, you know, obviously the faster they, they come, the faster they go. But, you know, that is an element of this game. And on a small ground. Yeah, well, on, you know. With, now, there's, there's a 55-metre straight boundary at, at Eden Park. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's basically a, an, an Aaron Finch sort of checked drive could probably bunt that long boundary. And if you've got really fast bowlers, top edges are much more yeah. likely to carry for six than be... The other night, Hashim Amla, you know, top edge that pull of uh, Mohit Sharma. He was caught at, uh, what, fine leg by Mohamed Shami. The ball had travelled 70 metres. At right. Eden Park, that would be a six. Yeah, it'd be it'd be a six and, and ten rows back into ten the rows stand. Back. Exactly, and Where, I mean the, the the general strategy to counter that is to bowl shorter because there's the straight boundaries. But then you know there's there's also a sixty two meter boundary. You know that that you might crack that short ball too. So it's the the margin for error for the bowlers in this game will be minimal. And I think you there's two good bowling attacks, but it, it that'll be interesting in that environment, in that pressure environment, which which bowling attack potentially cracks under that pressure? Particularly when they're bowling attacks that, that rely on swing. As you've said, the, the Kiwis swinging it a lot. The Australians have a couple who can swing it. If you're bowling short, that completely removes your main weapon from the armoury. So, yeah, it, it, could be, it could be an ugly game for bowling attacks. We could be looking at a sort of 350 aside kind Poor of bowlers. Kind 350 of chase, successful chase. And, I mean, first side scores 350 and then... You have uh, 350 being chased in that particular match. Yeah, let's just remember Southie got a 7 for if you go to poor bowlers. like yeah. <laughs> Reasonable form. Reasonable form. <laughs> yep. That's gone. So you mentioned the India game at the MCG, and we should yeah. move on to that now. Chetan, it, it was... It was a phenomenal game. The the MCG is is my home ground. I've been going there my whole life, and I've never seen it like I saw it on Sunday night. Completely packed to the absolute back row with, you know, there were nearly 90,000 in because they lose how many thousand seats with the ridiculous massive sight screen coverings, you know, taking out all of the prime seating behind the bowler's arm because apparently if a sparrow farts in the stadium, it might distract a batsman. But nonetheless, every available seat was full. It was an absolute sea of blue. Probably of those 90,000, there were about 75 
thousand Indian fans. I think MS Dhoni was being uh, conservative when he said fifty, <laughs> and and it was it was going mad. It was like a, a spaghetti pot on the boil. Just flags everywhere, people waving and dancing and shouting and screaming. And they're cheering dot balls. They're cheering overthrows. They're cheering singles. It, it was it was madness and it was beautiful. And India came back. They they'd not been in great form on this tour so far, but they came back and knocked off one of the favourites in South Africa. Well, first of all, I haven't seen anything like that. I mean, it was just amazing. I, I, I mean, Adelaide was beautiful when, when India-Pakistan and you had that atmosphere and that's that's always there in an India-Pakistan match. Um, in Mohali, as in 2011, there were 40,000 Indians singing the national anthem. That was That was amazing, but... MCG on Sunday was just, uh, I mean, even just the anthems. Before it was the, just game the anthems, absolutely. It was just started. It was, yeah, it you was, know, goosebumps. It kind was of magical. Um, uh, I think I wrote somewhere uh, where that the opening weekend there were eighty-five thousand Australians, you know, packed in there, and you know, it was a great atmosphere. And I was just wondering, you know, Australia in the final with such a, such a, such a fan fan base backing them in the final, they would be just. You know, unstoppable on that night, and then you see this, and just imagine if it's an India Australia final. But we are very far off from there. Uh, talking about the Indian uh, victory, there, um, I thought the Pakistan win was a one-off. It was a game which was uh, uh, between an overcooked side which had been on tour for three months and they had just played so much cricket non-stop, you know, and an underprepared side. Uh, Pakistan played what two warm ups in New Zealand, then two two ODIs, both of them lost, then two warm ups in the build up to the to the tournament. Um, they've lost three out of the thirteen ODIs before the tournament started. So, um, and overcooked was in an underprepared side. Pakistan's bowling lacked uh, like that lacked that penetration. It was just a morale booster, however big the game was, yeah. and especially because it was the opening game of the tournament. So you could just get it out of the way, and then you could start your tournament. But this match was probably. Uh, a far bigger indicator of where India's preparations uh, were in re- with regards to the tournament, how they would take on a big team if they faced them in the, knock- in, in the knockouts, whether it be the quarterfinals or the semifinals. And uh, with all due respect to England and how they're playing, I mean, England were beating India just a month ago uh, at Brisbane and then at Perth. And from, from that to turn it around, and it was not even a close victory. It was a 130-run comprehensive win. Absolute shocker from India. Absolute shocker. Yeah, it, it, and it came out of nowhere. And I'd say Shikhar Dhawan was probably oh. representative of India in that way because he's had such Absolutely. a wretched summer. He's been yeah. out of form. He's you know He made sort of 80-odd in a test match coming in at number six or seven after he'd been injured, having a slog with the tail. But that those are about the only runs that he's made this summer. The interesting summer. thing with his renaissance has been that he hasn't blasted his way back into form, that, yeah. that it was a measured innings against um, South Africa. But to me, out of this match, there was also the secondary narrative of... South Africa being so poor under the pressure of that that atmosphere and um, yeah they were they were just I mean they've got huge problems as far as their um, fourth fifth bowler situation they dropped Behadin and they bring in Parnell and I think Parnell got hit for what was it Seven, 70, 70 odd 
70, 85, 85 nine, nine overs. Yeah. Um, and that's the guy they bought in to not only bowl those overs, but mm. to bat at seven. And the game was well well gone by the time he came in. But you look at that lineup and you think, and we said this last week, and I'm possibly harping on it a little bit, but you just look at that South African lineup and you go, you know, they've got the two the, the two best ODI batsmen in the world, and yet you still look at that lineup and say, how are these guys going to win a World Cup? But this does seem to be rather sort of indicative of a wider trend in that um, India, who don't always have the form going into World Cups, seem to pull it out of the hat when the World Cup's on. They've got three World Cups in the uh, sorry, two World Cups in the bag, I think. Yeah, um, two audio ones. And yep. uh, South Africa, nothing. Even when they've been topping rankings and things, they have not been able to come to World Cups and perform. Whereas India, completely the opposite. And I think we saw that. On Sunday. Do you think India were foxing during that try series? Were they just using that a as, as a bit of a centre wicket practice? A, li- a little bit, because um, it was a time when they needed to switch off from the Test series and switch on for the World Cup. So they were like, "Okay, um, what are we going to gain by winning this try series?" Because that's the sort of team management we have under MS Dhoni and Daniel Fletcher. They really are practical people. They they want to. Uh, I mean, to them, a centre wicket practice is better than playing a twenty over or a forty over match against a proper cricket team. So they would rather have a centre-wicket practice than play a proper cricket match to get into gear for, say, a tournament like this. So for them, it was like, what, what's the best we can gain out of the tri-series? And let's just experiment. So they sent Virat Kohli at four. They did not push any of their bowlers who, was a, who were in their original um, World Cup squad. You, 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 you didn't have Ravindra Jadeja play a game until the last week of January. Uh, Ishan Sharma wasn't given a full game at any stage. He was he was in the original squad, and then at a late stage he was replaced. Bhuvneshwar Kumar was not pushed, so they were like, "Let's just coast through this. Let's just experiment. Let's just get our basics right." And and yeah. England, uh, sorry, India are actually in a luxurious position now, where previously you would have thought they'll they'll rush Kumar back, um, and now Mohit Sharma is performing absolutely, um, yeah. and. It's amazing the way a subtle change like that, that a guy, um, you know, who's just a steady performer, there's nothing dynamic about what he does, but in a bowling sense in ODIs, that a guy like that um, at such a low intensity, I mean, the other night he had two for 31 off seven, but it's just that it's the bowler who's not being taken apart, you know, and Mm. that showed a difference between these two sides that South Africa's fringe player in Parnell just gets blasted all over the place and um, Mohit Sharma can be relied upon to get through those overs and India just look a more solid side with, you know, with him in it. I yeah, Moet's very under the radar, isn't he? He's sort of, you know, I, I first formulated the theory that he was just Rohit Sharma wearing a fake moustache, but um, <laughs> actually wasn't He the just case. looks like a chartered accountant. But too. I think this is something that really isn't said often enough because when we talk about India, we always talk about their batting because that's what they're known for. That's what we want to talk about. But their bowlers have been, you know, even someone like Shami, I've always thought he's a real sort of workhorse. He's put, he put out 4 for 35 against Pakistan and now 2 for 30 in this match. He's, like you said, he's that consistent one. He picks up wickets, he stems or runs, and their bowling attack for, for a very, after a very long time, or I haven't thought this is the case, are looking the real deal. Shami has that bit of mongrel, doesn't he? He's, oh. he's a real competitor. You he gets to, angry. You want he to gets get fiery. behind him. You do and as I think well. Shami is also one of those guys who thinks he's better than he actually is. And there's something to be said <laughs> for that 
in an ODI scenario. He gets found out in test cricket a bit. He looks a bit pedestrian. But all of a sudden, with a white ball charging in, and, you know, those bounces are still only coming in down at 132 to 135 k's an hour. But there's that extra edge to the way he... And I think that's why he was one of the... I think how many wickets is he on now? He's, he's six, one of the f- six wickets, I think. Yeah, six wickets, four in the first yeah. match. But as far as yeah. his his career record, his uh, the okay. wickets that he's taken, I yeah. think he's he's got maybe to either fifty or a hundred, nearly as fast as anyone. And you think, how can that be? But he's in one day cricket. He's just a real. I think competitor. he's uh, close to Suckling Mustak's record of yeah. getting the yep. quickest yep. hundred wickets. Um, it's an interesting point. Um, he is a workhorse. For, for, for the Indian team because I in the last one year that I've followed this team around on their overseas tours I don't remember him ever missing a match uh, whether it was um, an inconsequential Asia Cup clash with Afghanistan where both teams were already out of the tournament he played that game for I don't know what reason because he'd been playing non-stop cricket in South Africa New Zealand then he played all the matches in England as well and at home so he, he he's always playing He's never rested, which is actually a good point because he's been fit for for a majority of this last one and a half years, despite playing all the IPL matches and everything. So um, that that's that's actually a very strong point in his favor. And yes, he's a very fierce competitor, and because he doesn't, you know, he 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 probably not the quickest uh, of bowlers, but again, he has that uh, a little bit of an extra pace when he gets puts all the effort in that shot delivery and and um, it's a good point from Matt because um, they have actually tried to get him to bowl those shot deliveries more often than any other bowler in this particular uh, in this particular attack even if you look at the test matches he's the one who who, who gets him that shot ball barrage it's not successful in test cricket not not very often for India I think the one time that worked wasn't was at Lords but after that it's not really worked but then uh, talking about the ODI format it's it's worked for him because it's just with the white ball, it just skids on a bit, uh, especially in uh, on on an MCG pitch, which was um, which was a, which was being used for second match in a row, I think, and uh, was a little up and down in the in, in the second innings. It's just the ball just skidded on. Yeah, so so the World Cup much more exciting, I think, now that India are really amongst <laughs> it. it. It's opened it up a bit. Mm. There's there are more permutations, more possibilities. Another team that have added interest to the World Cup. Have been Afghanistan. They've this is their first World Cup. They played their first match during the week, um, and then their second. They and they've performed really solidly. They've, they haven't won either of those games, but they had Bangladesh at four for one hundred and nineteen until Shakib Al Hassan and Mushfiqur Rahim came in. The two most experienced and quality players um, got Bangladesh away up to two hundred and sixty-seven, and Afghanistan couldn't chase it. And then they looked on the cards for an upset against Sri Lanka for. Uh, a lot of that match, Afghanistan made 232, which is competitive enough, and then they'd reduced Sri Lanka to four for 51, knocked over the top order very quickly, got rid of the first three wickets for very few runs at all. And Hamid Hassan bowled one of the best balls you'll ever see to yeah. clean bowl Kumar Sangakkara, <laughs> one of the best ODI players in the world, absolutely did him neck and crop and, and took his middle stump out. And they should have run Sangakkara out twice before that yes. as well. Yeah, and, and at three other runouts they missed during the innings too until they finally got one Evangelo Matthews so uh, in the end Sri Lanka got their six wickets down but you know that relied on Cesara Pereira coming in and slogging 40 odd late in the piece to take them home so 
a hugely encouraging start from Afghanistan in the World Cup. Yeah, I think they've been, as far as the, you know, from a neutral perspective and of the associates, they've been the most exciting team to watch. I mean, Ireland are certainly probably the most professional and the best drilled side of the associates, but... Um, Afghanistan have just been brilliant to watch and those two fast bowlers, we sort of intimated this before the tournament that they'd be the guys that sort of really fired Afghanistan and that's, you know, that's been the case. Hamad Hassan with his multicoloured headband and Afghanistan war paint looks like, you know, he should have drinks bought to him by Mr Miyagi or something. And, <laughs> and how good was the cartwheel when oh, he, he bowls Kumar Well, how rubbish was the cartwheel? And, and does the worst cartwheel you've ever seen, falls after, on his head, jumps up and slaps the ground. Yeah. After after the the best, but this is what's distances. so wonderful about the World Cup because actually Afghanistan, out of all the associate nations, probably had the worst form coming into this World Cup. And it's a bit like India in a way. A World Cup brings surprises and that's the beauty of it. And also interesting, I mean, they're playing Sri Lanka, a side who've been in New Zealand since December, playing hundreds of games. Um, Afghanistan have probably Quite never, badly never seen New Zealand before. And, and, but they've even adapted to those conditions well enough to be competitive. That's the most exciting bit about Afghanistan. I mean, they're just... Uh, there's something about them. I can't really put a finger on it, but they just seem so very dynamic. They 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 feel like they belong here. I mean, when they walked out at Canberra at the Monaco, well, it was the first match in World Cup. And you were at that game. Yeah, I was I at that game. Yeah. It was it was a bonkers game. I mean, the uh, the atmosphere, the Bangladeshi fans and the Afghanistan fans uh, probably outnumbered six or seven to one, perhaps even for a small capacity Monaco Oval, but. They were they were just so boisterous from the from ball one. They were just not, you know, sit and down. Both, both the Bangladeshi and the Afghan fans. There seems to be this kind of underlying confidence in the Afghanistan team, and yeah, even absolutely. Yeah. just their their Twitter account in the Sri Lanka match when they sort of had you know Sri Lanka on the ropes at the start. They start they they tweeted from the Afghan cricket board, excellent start as expected by Afghanistan. <laughs> yeah, and there's something to be said for having two big hairy fast bowlers steaming in and the confidence that brings and I think um, for me the the standout player of the tournament as far as cult heroes go so far has been <laughs> um, Shapur Zadran um, and just the way he the ludicrous run up that's three quarters of the way back to the boundary at about over five the other day he was limping back to his mark but the minute he rounded his his bowling mark he just charged in he's like you know this combination of Shoaib Akhtar and you know I don't know Brendan Julian or something and he just he's brilliant and there's there's probably the spirit of that side rests a little bit in those fast bowlers the way that yeah. they've roughed up Absolutely. teams and yeah. you know and they had they had Sri Lanka on the ropes it's, um, yeah it's and, just... and, and and it's a lack of polish that. You know, yeah. Jai Wadana comes in and just goes, okay, I've done this a million times before and, and rescues them. But for they've made sides look shaky. Yeah, that, that's that's what the thing is. I mean, the, just so much belief in that side. And um, um, Bangladesh were, even before, um, you know, uh, Shakibul and Mushfiqur Rahim had come in, um, the, the third wicket partnership, I thought it was, uh, they added some, what, 50-odd runs. Um, Soumya Sarkar and Mahmudullah, and then they just had Chapur uh, back in, and he and he removed uh, Soumya Sarkar. Actually, he removed both of, bo- them, yeah. both of them. Actually, so um, he is that impact bowler more than even Hamid Hassan. He is there, the one they depend on, and um, and he delivers, mm. and, he, and he just delivers. And and the point, Matt's point is actually 
uh, very valid that they're not polished and that's obviously to do with inexperience because when when Shakib and and Mushfiqur just went uh, away they didn't know what to do and bring them and you know bring the game back and yep. i think and just that's po- probably what also happened in in the lanka following game. on from that at the end of the day these are two matches that actually i thought that they could have won yes and I mean, they could have done better and they haven't and this is going to be the big thing coming into the scotland match is that afghanistan as much as we like them as much as we picked them up and talked about their performances they are the nearly boys and they haven't yet finished off that match. And I think Scotland will be a real decider in terms of how far they can go in this tournament. Yes, whether, whether they can finish that off. And also in, in Merves Ashraf, who's their sort of first change, you know, their third seamer, he's he's a lot slower, but he's been taking plenty yeah, of wickets because yeah. he's just very accurate. He nags on this line. There's some he's guile there and he bats well as well. You know, this isn't sort of a one-trick pony team that relies on, you know, obviously Nubby is the, the backbone of the team, but... My expectation leading into the tournament would be that, yes, they'll have some sides in trouble early with those opening bowlers, but that the batting might be a real liability. But they've quite easily negotiated their way to to 232 in that game against Sri Lanka. And they've shown that they're pretty comfortable at this level. And, you know, that's been... I think the associates have been the story of the tournament so far, Um, but particularly impressive Afghanistan. It was an excellent week for the associates. So the UAE versus Zimbabwe were not really expected to compete. They went out there and made 285 batting first um, and had contributions all down the order. Most of their batsmen got double figures of 22, 34, 45, 32, 67. I think the top eight all got double figures. Well, the eight and nine got sort of 25 and 23, which is incredible. So they all contributed and then they took Zimbabwe to within two overs of... um, of winning that game in the chase. Zimbabwe had a, a minor collapse and had to rely on a, a sensational 76 not out from Sean Williams and some, some spanking down the order from Craig Irvine to get themselves home and even said after the game that they just were expecting the UAE batting to collapse because they'd watched tape of them and, and yeah. expected that but to happen. This is the utter irony of the whole tournament. The closest matches yet have been the ones between the full and the associate nations. Right. I mean, the most one-sided one, let's be honest, was New Zealand-England. Yes, and uh, and even, you know, uh, well, South Africa-India was pretty one-sided. Yeah. England-Australia was pretty and one-sided. India-Pakistan. And I think the yeah. great thing too with Pakistan, the, West Indies. Pakistan West Indies with that UAE performance is you've got Zimbabwe who in their very first game of the tournament looked like they could beat South Africa and then all of a sudden they looked like they could lose to the UAE. So yes. it shows that the the question, you know, Dave Richardson's quote about the you know, the evenness and having competitive games is is an absurd concept because these sides at various points, these associate sides have looked like you know, tipping ridiculous upsets. Well, it's an inherently dishonest sort of uh, um, idea coming out of the ICC that that there isn't evenness because you know we've we've seen it here, and of course the you know um, the key in that in the last week was the Ireland versus West Indies match where uh, West Indies made three hundred and four, and Ireland chased it down. With relative ease, they had several overs to spare and several wickets up their sleeve by the time they ended up at 307. Sterling made 92, Joyce made 84, Niall O'Brien made 79. So, you know, three of their top four put on big half centuries and they cruised home. 
and stuck it up the ICC in the process. Yeah. But well, it's the fact that the ICC just continues spewing this utter rubbish that it is the competitiveness that is why we're going to make it a 10-team tournament. Why don't they just tell us why they're doing it? We all know the reason. Yeah, we and all it's know. It's not competitiveness. It's and- TV rights and it's having each. It's having uh, the, the high-ranking countries play nine games each in the pool stage. Um, you know, nine guaranteed games involving Australia, India, England, Pakistan, you know, teams who are actually worth money to And let's not forget as well, I mean, this was, you know, the Ireland's of today, the Afghanistan's of today. This was New Zealand a decade ago. And and Sri Lanka in the 80s. I mean, Sri Lanka were a nothing team in the 80s and they won. 13 years later, they win a World Cup. Yep. You know, but then again, if we I can just sit here and rant yeah. about it all day. I think sure. everyone feels exactly the same. Um, uh, yeah, um, I'm not sure about that. Um, I, I don't really have a problem with the 10-team format. Uh, I, I don't have a f- problem with all teams playing each other. I think that's that's the perfect format for a Cricket World Cup. It just, um, I mean, while while I do feel that there should be more double headers in, in, in a tournament like this, it's a ridiculous uh, length of six weeks, but I do feel that the ten-team format with all teams playing each other is is the right one. Now, my problem though is why are there only two spots for the associates? Why that's the problem that we, not just us, even the ICC are not facing this problem. We, you know, you you can have the top five ODI teams which bring all the money, all the television rights, but then again, why should the bottom five be there? I mean, you look at. Um, well, you, you, but you want your sport to become bigger, not smaller. And this is the point is it's all very well to say, well, right at the moment, you know, these are the nations that bring in the money. But, I mean, there's more money out there in, on, on these, you know, on these frontiers. And that's the the backwards logic of the economic argument is you're, when you when you spread cricket to these countries, you're opening up new financial markets for cricket. And I think with the as far as the World Cup concept goes, with you saying it's better if all sides play each other, is the football World Cup a lesser tournament for the fact that, you know, you've got you've got eight groups where I, where teams you know, it's a yeah, knockout don't, process. Yeah, I understand that, but then you also have to take into consideration that um, a length of an ODI is almost twice the length of or maybe even thrice the length of a football match. So you have to Consider those modalities as well. I mean, there are there are certain days when when four four group matches happen in one day. You cannot do that with with, with an ODI World Cup. At most, you can have two matches a day. Um, you have to give some benefit of the doubt to to the broadcasters and the ICC. And I understand maybe it can be a twelve team World Cup if not a ten team World Cup. That's 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 beyond the point. I mean, if you want to bring cricket to these teams and to bring it to new frontiers, you can still do it in a ten-team World Cup. Why? Why must the so you know, so we bring cricket to front new frontiers by having fewer teams play? See, I mean, uh, for 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 fifty over ma- for fifty over World Cup, maybe I'm not saying ten team is the best format. I'm saying all teams playing each other is the best format. It can be done in a twelve-team World Cup as well if you have more double headers. So maybe the key is having a more open qualifying process, exactly, where the exactly. smaller teams yeah. are actually given games, given, against given higher games, ranked given teams chances, yes, over the period of four years rather than getting but a then game this is almost the ICC's worst case scenario because what if India doesn't make it? Yes, but that, well, that's exactly what should happen. Though. India yeah. should be a possibility to not make it. You know, Australia should be a possibility. I mean, then they have to actually respect the qualification. Yeah, that, that gives a context and a meaning to yes. one-day internationals there. And this is the, the, the point being mooted by Wally Edwards is at the moment is why don't we call all one-day internationals World Cup cricket and you know, have a, yeah, essentially have a rolling qualifier system. 
it it does because you know uh, there are so many bilateral matches happen and you know you have five match series seven match series which is just pointless if say for example you you want to have a more expanded qualifying format for for the world cup if it's a 10 team world cup or a 12 team world cup say for example uh, you have the cut off for the qualifying tournament in 2017 for the 2019 world cup so if for that cut off date instead of saying the top 8 qualify you say top 4 qualify or top 5 qualify and so all the other a, spots are open and all the other spots are open so even if india are ranked 6 at that time they go into that qualifying tournament and suddenly you even get more eyeballs for the qualifying tournament as well so that's a win win situation for the icc for the associates and for the full full associates full 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 members at the same time so my my big problem with this format is the the fact that it's just only two spots that have been made available for the lower teams it should be at least four if not six excellent well we should probably have a quick look at what's to come uh, the only match we haven't mentioned that happened in the last week was the pakistan west indies match which is probably best not discussed at great length it was a completely embarrassing display from pakistan and you'd have to say they're they're on the brink now of being nudged out of the world cup Yes, the wrong Pakistan has showed up to this World Cup. Their batting's been atrocious and to lose that badly to the West Indies is probably an accurate reflection of where they're at right at the moment, unfortunately. I thought their fielding was more horrendous than any other fielding performance I've ever seen in my life. Yes, but you know, the good Pakistan could be around the corner as well and and you know, the West Indies lost to Ireland and then came back against Pakistan. So, who knows? The the Windies have shown us that I don't think they can be written off completely. You only really need to win 3 games to win this World Cup once if you make the quarters, win 3 in a row and you're in. So, you know, still still around the mark. Now, we won't look at the West Indies v Zimbabwe game because that's happening as we're recording this. So, there's not much point, but South Africa v West Indies will be coming up this week. Chetan, do you think the South Africans will be rattled? Uh, I don't think so. I mean, uh, they are a quality side. They only need to figure out who their fifth bowler equation, what their fifth bowler equation is. I think uh, uh, they they know that they made a wrong decision at MCG and they'll want to correct that, but I think uh, even if they go with the same team, they have enough quality to absolutely hammer this West Indies side. India v UAE at the Gabba is going to be a tough ask for the Emirates Russell they probably uh, that that pitch was completely vividly green when the covers came yes. off it um last weekend for the Bangladesh game that yes. didn't happen um they've been interesting the UAE even going back to the practice match before the tournament against Australia in which in a bowling sense at least I mean Australia got 300 but they hung in there they were competitive they could have beaten Zimbabwe in the last match and for a team made up of part-time cricketers you know I think their achievement while while it won't grab any headlines has been extraordinary in itself you know you've got guys like all-rounder Fayez Ahmed who's a walkie-talkie technician you know and it's just it's crazy to think that in 2015 you've got part-time cricketers who many of whom you know have this this kind of push and pull scenario with their em- employers about being able to play and a lot of them play for company teams and there's complications with that as far as you know limiting their movements and who they can play for and it's a strange uh preparation for for playing against elite world cricketers the, the way that you know their setup is and i think you know there's it's really admirable the way that they've 
they've gone about their cricket at this World Cup and I don't think any anyone will fancy them in that match but I think that you know as with all of their other performances so far in Australia they'll they'll, they'll be competitive are, are they any more of a chance against Ireland who they'll also play this week or I wouldn't not? think so no but It'll be good to watch just for more Kuram Khan facts on, on Twitter, which were going around last week. Afghanistan v Scotland, Izzy, this one's, as you mentioned earlier, set to be a real point of yeah. interest this so week. like I said before, Afghanistan have, have showed what they can do, but they haven't finished it. And I think this is their real opportunity to do that. Um, I mean, you've got to look at players like Hassan, who's, who's picked up three for 45 against Sri Lanka and two for 61 against Bangladesh. He's the guy I'll be turning to, and then with the bat, um, there have been some, you know, I think Shenwari and, I'm going to pronounce this wrong, Stanixer, um, they put on an 88 partnership. So I think they've got, they've got the um, all-round sort of firing potential, so whether they do it. Scotland, I mean, they haven't won a World Cup match. I, I'm backing Afghanistan and I'd like to see them win. I'd like to see them this time finish off that job. And Pakistan, Zimbabwe was the other one I wanted to ask you about. It's so hard to pick because we've had Zimbabwe nearly beat South Africa and then nearly lose to the UAE, as, as well, Russell mentioned. Pakistan and... now have conceded two games, 300 runs. So this is going to be the key. If Zimbabwe can put a big total on that board, I don't see Pakistan chasing that. And I think if you look at the form that Williams was in and the pace that he set that innings um, against the UAE, I would... Zimbabwe, I'm. I'd. I'd like to see them again. I think they. They I could be an interesting chance. back. Yeah. 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 In with a um, shout. And also, I think Pakistan. They haven't won two matches in a row for a, for a, almost a year now. Right. So, and it's strange um, to say that with Pakistan, that bowling is their strength, and they've been hit 300. for three hundred twice. Yeah. Right. You know. But that that's that's the situation. And the final game coming this week is Bangladesh and Sri Lanka and Chetan. I think this one could be really interesting. Actually, Bangladesh looked good uh, in their previous hit out. They've got that extra bonus point from the washout against Australia. They'll be quite buoyant. Sri Lanka have been sluggish, you know, all summer. They haven't really hit their straps. Uh, are they a chance to be rolled over by the Tigers? Uh, I think it'll be an interesting game. I think, um, like you said, Sri Lanka haven't really hit their straps. I think that's that's the key factor in this match. And um, the fact that they have three points should spur Bangladesh on. This is their big chance um, to to get to the quarters. They they need another win. If they can uh, knock over Sri Lanka, then uh, they have uh, England in big trouble. And I think... Uh, Uh, That'll be very interesting to see. We will be back next week to look at all of the results of those games, the permutations, the high points, the low points, the hilarious points, the sad points, and all of the things that are yet to come, thanks to this week's guest cast, Russell Jackson, Izzy Westbury, and Chetan Narula. I'm Jeff Lemon. This is the Guardian World Cup podcast, and we'll see you next time. For more great downloads, go to theguardian.com slash audio.